Tonight's scripture reading comes from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, 4 through 6, 8 to 10, and 23 to 25. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth, six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore... At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sounds of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I set up? Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, 
and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This is the word of the Lord. Join me as we pray. Jesus, we come now to you with open hearts, and we ask that you would feed us with yourself, the bread of life, that our hearts may be strengthened and encouraged as we think about what it means to live for you in a way that reflects you for your glory and for our good. And so now speak to us, we ask, in Christ's name, amen. We are continuing our series uh, on faithful ambassadors, and we are asking the question, what does it mean for us as Christians uh, living in 21st century here to live our lives in a way that will honor the Lord, but also uh, be good in, in a way that we could serve and love the city and the country that is seemed to be uh, in a whirlwind of change. If you have been paying attention to uh, news this week, you know a lot has happened. And I've been uh, asked many times uh, from various people, what do you think? What should we do? What does it mean for us as a church? And that is why we turn now to Daniel chapter 3 and asking that he would speak to us to guide us with his word so that we as believers would be able to honor him in the way we live our lives. <clears throat> Earlier this year, I tried to uh, run for 20 minutes on a treadmill. Uh, you may remember that my New Year resolution was to get in shape like all of you every year, right? And uh, <clears throat> the key word there is I tried. Uh, the first, for the first five minutes, I think I, I was doing really well. I felt like I could do this 20 minutes, no problem. And then about uh, three minutes later, so into like eight minutes of running, I hit a wall, and that wall is called out of shape, okay? Uh, and that wall will get you every single time. And at that point, I was trying not to die, okay? It's a bad place to be when you're in a treadmill and your legs feel really heavy and different parts of your body begin to cramp. And, and you, you had no idea that you had muscles in, in those parts of the body. And uh, that's when the song, Eye of the Tiger, came on Pandora. <laughs> All of a sudden, I, I, I don't know what happened. Just things clicked. The lights went on, and I felt the surge of energy just flowing through my body. And before long, I was doing a six-minute mile on my treadmill. And, I mean, I could have ran for another day or two. Um, 
Seriously, though, if you've watched the movie, you know what I'm talking about. It's a story of this guy in the streets of Philadelphia proving to himself that he's not just a bum off the street. And he goes a full distance with Apollo Creed and reaches the summit of his career as a boxer. But then somehow he sort of loses the eye of the tiger. And so his friend comes and says, look, you got to get it back. If you want to stay in the game, you got to regain that eye of the tiger. And remember the training scene? Hearts on fire. I don't know. Some of you have seen the movie. You, you, you're ready to work out right now. You're ready to do push-ups right now. But if you haven't seen the movie, you don't get it. Why? Because the story gives the song its meaning and significance. The story gives a song its meaning and significance. And that's what's going on here in Daniel chapter 3. The ark of God's redemption gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their faith meaning and significance. If it weren't for God and his commitment to save his people, we would not be reading about three men and their faith and courage in the face of death. Rather, we would be reading about their stupidity. That they would not simply bow before this image to save themselves. But we read about their great faith and courage because there is a God. And he has committed himself in a covenant, through a covenant, to redeem his people. And this is the message the original audience needed to hear so badly. Here they are, exiled in a distant land. Asking themselves the question, is this the end? Is this the end of the story? Have we really blown it? Did God really give up on us? Did he abandon his people? And through the stories we read in the book of Daniel, God reminds his people that he has neither forgotten nor abandoned his covenant that he is just as committed to them as he was when he made that covenant. And he's got to see to it that his people live their lives in a way that would reflect his beauty, his moral character, his goodness, even in a foreign land, making an impact right there in Babylon. You see, Daniel chapter 3 is... Not so much about three men and their faith, but it's really about God's faithfulness to his people. Even when they're living through the consequence of their sin. And sometimes we need to hear those words too, don't we? We feel like our efforts to be faithful, our efforts to be faithful ambassadors here in this city, in our workplace, in the relationships that God has blessed us with, seems trivial, and if anything, it seems like it's not going anywhere. And we're ready to throw in the towel too. Is it worth it? Am I making a difference? And God reminds us that he has not given up on us, and he intends to fulfill his promise to redeem all things through you and I. And therefore, 
our obedience, regardless of how insignificant they may seem, have meaning and significance. And for that reason, we can move into this world regardless of the the situation we find ourselves in, regardless of the policies that are passed, regardless of the, the cultural wars that are going on, we can be confident that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. The two things we want to look at tonight, first is the statue of gold, and second, we will look at the Son of God. The statue of gold. In Daniel chapter 2, God, through Daniel, revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar the mystery of the kingdoms to come. And in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue with a head of gold symbolizing Babylon, chest and arms of silver symbolizing the next kingdom to come, and belly and thighs of bronze symbolizing yet another kingdom to come, and finally, legs of iron mixed with clay, another kingdom to come. But this wasn't good enough for Nebuchadnezzar. You see, he wanted a kingdom that would last through the ages. So in the very same plain where the Tower of Babel once stood, many generations ago, Nebuchadnezzar built a statue of gold from head to toe as an act of defiance to God. To say, God, you may think this, you may will this, but I have other plans. You see, according to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel served two main functions. First, it was to build a lasting legacy. People came together in the plain of Shinar and said, look, let's build this city with this tower reaching to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Now, there is nothing wrong with wanting to make a name for ourselves, to be a part of something greater than ourselves. In fact, God urges us and he calls us to be a part of a kingdom that goes beyond just 80 years, maybe if we're lucky. And he says, this is what the Bible says when it says he put eternity in our hearts. There's a longing in our hearts to be a part of, to contribute to something bigger than me, bigger than you. But this is not that kind of legacy. How do we know that? Location is important. You see, when you read through Genesis in the first 11 chapters, you realize that as people moved eastward, it meant they were going further and further away from the presence of God. Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they were exiled toward east, away from the garden. And Cain, after he murdered his brother, was moved on to a city east of Eden. And here in Genesis chapter 11, we find people gathered in a city that is far from the presence of God. And they're trying to redefine themselves and to make a name for themselves apart from God. The second function the Tower of Babel served was to bring people under one unifying symbol. And again, what's wrong with that? Not, it's not that bad, bringing people together for a common cause. We do that all the time, be it our sports teams, right, our political views, our doctrine, our interests. We do this all the time. But again, you have to understand in light of the cultural mandate that's given in Genesis chapter 1, where God commanded us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Again, this is their act of rebellion. They not only said, God, we don't need you, 
But God, we're going to do fine without you. And really, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar built is nothing other than the Tower of Babel 2.0. Because that's exactly what he's trying to do. He's saying, I'm going to build a lasting legacy for myself by gathering my people under one banner, this statue, and we're going to be a kingdom that will last. The, kit, the text gives us no description of the statue except for its dimensions. And it is huge. It's not one of those little things that you get when you win a soccer championship, right? Little league championship playing soccer. No, this thing was huge. And we don't know what it looked like. It could have been an image of himself or an image of other Babylonian deities. But the lack of the description is what makes it convenient. It could be whatever you want it to be. It could mean whatever you want it to mean. Sound familiar? Nebuchadnezzar summoned all the people, all the leaders from all the provinces of Babylon to worship this golden image. And notice the strategy. Nowhere in the text does he say, you must abandon your God. Rather, he says, look, you can keep your God. That's fine. You can pay tribute. You can offer whatever you want to it. But just include this one on your list of gods. And during that time, it wasn't foreign. People were used to having many gods. They had their local deities plus other gods that they bowed to for convenience. And so this statue would have been no different. And so when the moment came, everyone fell and worshipped except for these three men. It's hard to hide when you're the only three standing. And so they were brought in before the king for a private interrogation. Just, just think about it. You are standing before the king. And death is imminent. I don't know about you, but I would have prayed some, some of the most sincere prayers I would have ever prayed. God, change his heart. God, break that furnace. God, break my legs. Maybe I'll just collapse to the floor. Something, do something. Yet here we see these three young men standing tall before the king and even before death. And Nebuchadnezzar asked a rhetorical question. He said, look, if you don't bow, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hands? You see, you're not supposed to answer rhetorical questions, but they do. They say, well, actually we do have a God who is able to save. And they say in verses 16 through 18, look, we don't have to defend ourselves in this manner or give you an answer. But we want you to know that our God is able. Our God is able. And even if he does not, NIV says, even if he does not, O king, we want you to know that we will never bow and worship this statue. These three young men took a stand for their faith. They didn't go around looking for trouble. They didn't go around looking to debate people about theology, which God is right. No. 
but they didn't shy away from it either. When the moment came, they stood because they believed that God is able. Let me ask you, church, do you believe that God is able? We sign off on that. We check that box on the list of things we believe in. Does your life reflect that? Jesus, in his own words, said, do not fear the one who is able to destroy the body, but fear the one who is able to destroy the, both body and soul. See, what that's, that's what faith does. Faith gives us courage to stand before rulers and kings of this world and say, this is why I will stand because God is able. He is able to save. He may or may not, but he certainly is able. Much like Martin Luther, when he stood before the Diet of Worms, the church authorities and even the emperor asked him to recant his belief and the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And, you know, we don't know what all went through his mind and his heart. But he must have went back to Daniel chapter 3. The moment when these three young men stood before the leaders of his time. And Luther came back and said, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. How about you? What captivates your mind and your heart? You see, we not only bow before our idols, but we also fear it. We fear losing it. And if we look deep into our hearts, into the recesses of our hearts, the things we fear may not be God. It might be our career, our loved ones, our status in this city. The list goes on and on and on. When we look at our world today, things have changed, but not a whole lot. The public sphere has developed an allergic reaction to Christianity. And it's always trying to sanitize any resemblance of Christianity away. It tells us to keep it quiet, keep it private. You can do what you want in your home, in your church, but don't bring that to the public sphere. You know, many of you know I, I'm an avid basketball fan, and, and recently when Stephen Curry uh, won the MVP. You know, before he gave his uh, acceptance speech, he was told uh, by ESPN not to mention Jesus. So you know what he does? He starts his speech by saying, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In these small ways, 
I think we as Christians must take a stand. We can no longer, in the name of being gentle, gracious, legalistic, stand on the sidelines and pretend like we are not responsible for what's happening, not only in our city, but in in our country. You cannot look at the things that are going on and read the papers and say, well, that's their problem. It is our problem. We are called to be salt and light. And the Bible promises that if we humble ourselves and pray, God will hear not just our hearts and our church, but he will heal our land. This is a great calling and responsibility that he has given to us. But all too often, in the name of being polite, we have said, no, it's okay. I don't want to, I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. That's where Jesus freaks out there. No, I, I'm very gracious. I'm gospel-centered. I'm not, I, I don't do that. And we have a way of spiritualizing away everything and saying, look, you don't have to be so legalistic about these things. But how much longer are you willing to sit idly by when the gospel that saved us says, you are now to be salt and light? Engage. Get to know people who are different from you. It's going to be messy and awkward. And it's going to be hard. But that's how you learn to love and serve people who are different from you. And you grow. And you know, things may get worse. Things may get worse. You know, before long... Somewhere in the near future, what we believe right here in this church and what is preached from this pulpit may be considered hate speech. Already in these progressive countries, people are being fined, losing their jobs, their businesses, even their children because of their faith. So the question before us is simply this. How do we navigate then the tumultuous times we find ourselves in today where the cultural tide is changing at a dizzying pace? It's almost to a point where we can't keep up with what's going on. And here, Daniel chapter 3 reminds us, it takes our eyes off of the immediate And it helps us to see the eternal. That God is still God. That Christ is still on the throne. That all of his promises are still yes and amen because of the finished work. And we will triumph. And not even the gates of hell will be able to withstand the church. That's the promise that we have to see. If all you see is the media and what's going on, you're going to become hopeless. And you're going to think, look, what's the point? These problems are so much bigger than what I can solve on my own. So does that even matter? Yes. Yes, it does. Because this God has committed himself to you and I and to the church 
to carry out this work, this beautiful work of reflecting his beauty, his moral beauty and his goodness to this world so that we become agents of change, agents of love, agents of grace, agents of mercy, agents of healing, that we become the bridge between people who are hurting. That's what we can be. And how do we do that practically? We stand for Jesus. And what does it mean to stand for Jesus? It means that we stand for what is good. We stand for what is lovely. We stand for what is beautiful. We become the voice for the voiceless. We become those who stand for the weak and the oppressed. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And we weep with those who weep. That's what it means to stand for Jesus. And every day is filled with opportunities to apply this in our life. And I pray that you would seize every moment to bring the gospel into that situation, into that relationship, so that this world may see Christ through you. And we're not motivated by guilt or shame, but we do so out of gratitude, knowing that God, he is with us, he is for us, and he has paid the price of our imperfect faith. Because it's a messy process, isn't it? We're going to mess up. We're going to drop the ball. And it's not always going to be perfect. But it's okay. We press ahead. Daily, we try to be faithful as we look to him and to his promise. Secondly, real quickly, the son of God. The text says, Nebuchadnezzar, filled with fury, had these three men bound and thrown into the furnace. And here in verse 24, it's funny. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know how well he did in calculus, but he says, look, I thought we threw, three, we threw in three men, but I count one, two, three, four. Wait a minute, what's going on here? And the fourth one, he looks like the son of the gods. Now, we don't know what he looked like. Maybe he was gigantic, bright, glorious. I don't know. But something about him was so glorious, so majestic, that this king would say, this one looks like the son of the gods. Now, who is this son of the gods? Well, he is the pre-incarnate Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, Jesus makes cameo appearances here and there. And we see a good example of that in Exodus chapter 3, where the angel of the Lord appear before Moses in the flame. And from that very flame, it says, the voice of the Lord spoke to Moses. So who is it? Is it the angel or is it the Lord? And the answer is yes. It's Christ himself. And notice, Jesus did not save them from the furnace. Rather, he saved them in the furnace. Again, I, I, I wonder how many of us would have prayed, Lord, save me from that furnace. I know I would have. Lord, break that furnace. Save me. Why? Is it because my God is not able to save in the fire? He's able to save me from the furnace. Maybe he can break it. But once I'm in, I'm done. Is my God not big enough to save me? From the worst nightmare. 
And Jesus says, I am. He's done it before. He refers to the Exodus story as deliverance from the furnace of Egypt. And he does it once again here in Babylon as he delivers these three young men. And this is just an example of what God is doing for his people in Babylon in exile. God who has committed himself will deliver his people. And if you read through the account, it's not like they were struggling in Babylon. They actually flourished. Many people like these three young men and Daniel, they've prospered. They rose in ranks. They made an impact in that community, in that city. And they were used muddily for the kingdom of God. And even the Babylonians, they came to know, as we will see even from Nebuchadnezzar himself, he comes to faith and he comes to know this one true God. And years later, Jesus would enter the furnace yet again for the last time. And there on the cross, he died without friends, all by himself, to deliver his people from the furnace of God's wrath. You see, Jesus is no stranger to our pain and suffering. And some of you today may be going through what you would consider a furnace, a furnace of disappointment, of ongoing pain, struggle, hardship, broken dreams and relationships. And you wonder if God knows, if God cares. And Daniel 3 tells us he does. He knows and he cares and he is with you. Let me tie this all together as we wrap up. How do we live in a world that seems to be changing so fast? A world that seems somewhat hopeless and bleak. A world that seems to be growing in its hostility and brokenness. How do we live our lives here? Simply with this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... They stood for God based on even if not faith. Even if not. And there's a tone of uncertainty there, isn't it? Even if not, God can, but he may not. But you and I, on this side of the cross, we have a great advantage. How do we live in this world? We live by because he has faith. We look back at the cross and we see the finished work of Christ. That he has begun the work of salvation. And he put down not 50% of the deposit, but he put 100% of the deposit. And he said he's going to come back and he's going to finish this work. And for that very reason, we can move into this world knowing that our seemingly petty obedience does not go to waste but it goes to glorify him for the good of this city. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your commitment to each and every one of us, people you call your own, your beloved. You are committed to us, committed to living out your story through us, 
committed to picturing yourself through our obedience as we learn to stand firm for you. And we're praying, God, that you would give us courage. Give us courage as we look to you, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.